Welcome to episode four of Scaredy Cats Horror Show. This week, we're talking about Hereditary and Midsummer. Also, just trigger warning, these movies contain scenes of suicide and sexual violence. Also, if you are a genuine scaredy cat, I feel like these movies are scary enough that just talking about them and hearing audio clips of them is somewhat scary. Anyway, buckle up. Welcome to Scaredy Cats, episode four. This week, we have a returning guest. Um, she was here last week, author of In the Dream House and Her Body and Other Parties, uh, Carmen Maria Machado. Carmen, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for having me. This week, we are talking about the Ari Aster movies uh, Hereditary and Midsommar. Midsummer? How do, you, how do we want to do this? I'm going to say just... Midsommar because that's how I say it. I feel like... It makes me an asshole, so feel free to say it however you want. It doesn't make you an asshole. My theory is that it probably is pronounced Midsommar, but Alex, there's no world where Alex is ever going to say anything but Midsummer. <laughs> okay. So I think it's just like, go whatever way feels comfortable for you. I've noticed okay. as I've been talking about it, I switch in between, and I think it has something to do with like whether I'm more worried the person I'm talking to is going to think I'm pretentious or dumb. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what will you say now? Well, I, the problem is that I'm worried that you'll think I'm dumb, and I'm worried Alex will think I'm pretentious. So, oh, oh my god, that's a real, that's a real sticky wicket there. <laughs> um, so normally we have a set of rules which disallow PJ from watching during the day, watching with the lights on, uh, using second screens, uh, having watching with anyone else. Um, this, the Manzukis rules. The Manzukis rules established in episode one. These particular movies I thought were intense enough that I should watch the movies with him. And um, I did, and it was a delight. I feel like he got to vocalize a little of his, like, internal monologue that that usually goes on with these movies more than just like, yeah. oh, oh, my God, which was also <laughs> a lot of what he was saying. Yeah, that's, I can confirm that. Um, so I guess we should start with Hereditary and just sort of step through the movie. I'm trying to figure out, in the other movies, it felt like a very simple simple pro simple issue to try and explain a movie in two sentences hereditary feels harder to explain in two sentences pj i you feel like i can sum it up go for it oh shit okay it i mean just like the plot synopsis yeah it's a movie it's a movie about a family that is processing the recent death of the grandmother who was mean and no one liked and uh what quickly happens is that the granddaughter of the family dies in a freak accident, and the grandmother seems to be haunting them. Uh, eh? Eh? I would say kind of. Uh, uh, 60%? Yeah. I would say about 40%. <laughs> okay, go. All right. You, you, what do you guys do better? Um, no, I actually, I must say, I do think your inability to sum up the movie concisely is actually a symptom of a problem the movie has, <gasps> I, I will Ooh. say. Which is? Well, which is that Hereditary, while it has a lot of things going for it, is not cohesive in any meaningful way, which really gets in its own way. Whereas, like, Midsommar, to me, feels like a very cohesive piece of art. Um, I strongly agree. Str I guess okay. we'll get to both of those, but I strongly agree. I'm not saying that, like, not being able to sum it up is necessarily bad, because there's lots of art that's, like, hard to sort of, you know, boil down into, like, a nugget of explanation. But I do feel like in this, this case the movie is confused about what it's trying to do and it makes it hard to explain what's actually going on. It starts out being this like combination of the dead grandmother of the family is haunting them and you're gradually also realizing that this family itself is like pretty toxic and messed up. And then it kind of slides into, oh wait, this is all in service of some evil demon who like requires sacrifice and to find like a male host. Like it, it kind of goes from like, one kind of scary movie into like a different sillier kind of scary movie it's like a crossfade right so the opening scene essentially is just the funeral of of the grandmother and it's um tony collette is the mom in the family and she's giving a eulogy and she's talking about how she doesn't recognize many of the people there and how her mom was very secretive and mean uh, <clears throat> um it's heartening to see so many 
strange new faces here today. Um, I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious. <laughs> um, it's a weird eulogy. It's the eulogy of a person who did not like the person who has died. Yeah, they do a good job of, of accurately capturing what a funeral feels like when everyone knows the person who died is a dick. She had private rituals, private friends, private anxieties. It honestly feels like a betrayal just to be standing here talking about her. And it's just like a big setup for the fact that she doesn't recognize anybody there because her mother was this secretive, weird cult leader. Oh, right. I did not... Right. I did not realize that. Right. So she does this eulogy, and and it, like, sets up all of this stuff really quickly. First of all, it's like... They have a, a weird daughter who makes clicking sounds and draws during funerals. Oh, yeah, she does. They have a son a son who seems a little little tuned out. Um, and you quickly find out that their daughter's allergic to nuts, which will come into play later. And you also just see the way that this family interacts, which is like without much talking, not liking one another. Um, it, it, it just seems like everybody is incredibly, incredibly distant. And... It's weird because later in the movie, you find out that the mother was diagnosed with DID, with dissociative identity disorder, but they all seem so dissociated. Like, they seem checked mm-hmm. the fuck out. And, well, like, really it's, in the beginning of the movie, for me, actually, I couldn't, I couldn't tell if this was a family that was really dysfunctional or just a family that was grieving. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I did like about the movie is, like, I feel like usually when you watch a movie, you assume you're on the side of the characters, <laughs> particularly, like, the heroes in a horror movie, and sort of... I didn't realize the extent of the family's dysfunction until they started processing the grief in more dysfunctional ways. Like, at first I was like, I don't know, this is the day after somebody's mom died. Right. You know? But, like, they they live in this gigantic house in the middle of nowhere. Um, and basically, as soon as the mother dies, people start seeing, basically, apparitions. Charlie, the daughter, sees a woman in a field with fire around her. Um, and then there's the scene where Tony Collette's character sees her mother in the darkness. Yes, I remember that. It was so scary. I have to say all of the, there's like a few moments in the movie where there are presences in dark corners. I think it's like the most effective sort of visual scares of the movie. Like I remember the first time I saw Hereditary and there's the part where the mom is floating up in the corner. And I didn't see it. Like, the son is, like, rubbing his eyes in bed and it's just gotten up. And then at some point you realize that, like, Tony Collette is, like, up in the corner like a spider. Oh, yeah. I totally saw that. It was super freaky. But it's, like, in the movie theater, I remember sitting there and I didn't notice it. And then I was – and then I heard somebody gasp, like – like a few rows away from me and I was like what are they gasping at it's just this br- this guy like rubbing his face or whatever and then I realized that she was like up in the corner and I was like oh Jesus like I mean visually I think the scares are like really well done in this movie I actually uh recorded PJ while we watched the movie together um you know the scene where Tony Collette gets up and is like wandering around the house and it's one of her dream sequences but PJ is PJ Yelling at Tony Collette is very funny. I would love to play it. <laughs> Please do. PJ, I'm sure you'd love to hear it. Yeah, I'd love to. Please. Oh, Tony Collette, go back to bed. <laughs> Tony! <laughs> Tony! No, 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 no. Oh. Fuck off. Fuck off. No, no, no. That's it. Um, <laughs> they really feel like how it feels to be alone in a house late at night. And you think you see something, but you're sure your brain made it up. Like, they're very yeah. good at that in a way that I've never seen in a movie before. Like, you're just like, yeah. I think there's something in the corner. Oh, God, there's something in the corner. And then it's gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things I enjoyed so much about it is just that even when you don't, there aren't people in the corner scaring you. Like, it, you constantly feel like they're there. <laughs> They basically make you yeah. not trust your eyes because the movie's so dark that you're mm-hmm. sort of uh, sort of filling in all these ideas. Like there's this scene where Charlie, the daughter, she's sitting in the classroom and just out of nowhere, this bird slams into the window and leaves like a bloody smear. And They're setting you up to think that Charlie and the grandmother have some spooky connection and Charlie's going to do evil stuff in the house. It's like what... It seems like the movie's saying. And, and and it does that 
pretty overtly by having her cut a pigeon's head off right after the, the pigeon that runs into the window by cutting its head off with a pair of scissors and putting it in her pocket. PJ, you were very upset about that. <laughs> I hated that. I hated that. What in particular about that upset you? I, uh, I don't know how to explain to you that it's upsetting to watch a child cut the head off a bird. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. As I said when we were watching it, you know, didn't you ever burn uh, ants with a magnifying glass? No. You didn't? No. There's a lot of ways in which I don't have the early childhood traits of serial killers. I mean, the bird was dead. The bird like, was I think dead. That when it's, it's not quite the same as burning ants because the bird was already dead and she just cut the head off. I mean, it reminded me of like one time I found – I walked past a bird that had died and the ants were swarming all over it and had only taken the head – had only eaten down the head. So the head was like a skull, but like oh. the rest of the bird's body was like perfectly intact. Oh. And I took like so many photos and the only thing that stopped me from picking it up <laughs> and like try to do something with it was the fact that I was not at home. I was like in another state and I, there would have been no way to bring it home <laughs> like san- in a sanitized way. <laughs> yeah, who's the sociopath now, PJ? You're the yeah, only I'm one here <laughs> who hasn't killed animals or picked up I just, corpses. My I'm, office is full of dead things. Like... I've literally got, like, a dead snake in here. Like, I don't know. I'm the know. other kind of person from you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I hate dead things. I hate being around bodies that have decayed and corpses and stuff like that. I hate it. I mean, that's why I don't work in a morgue. But, I mean, I'm not scared of, like, a squirrel carcass. Okay. I don't know who, what you're bragging about right now. I'm not bragging. I'm just like, I just don't understand it. So uh, what I was saying is that they're kind of setting up the daughter, Charlie, to be a bit of a weirdo. Because, like, then she goes home and, like, glues, hot glues it to a bunch of garbage she has laying around. She's, like, making little figurines with it. And it does, it does yeah. make it seem like she's going to be the evil kid. Not only that, but all the marketing for the movie was, like, Tony Collette and this kid. That was like, well, and the kid has like a really interesting looking face, and you said that they had sort of made her up more for the movie, but she, she, she seems like the strange thing in the movie, and like to me, the the one of the things that I, I hated watching it, but appreciated it about the movie is they have, I like generally in stories when they successfully you know swerve in a direction I didn't expect, and so like with her, there's this scene where her brother is forced to take her along to a party. He's, like, trying to, like, smoke weed and hook up with some girl. And so he leaves her alone. Oh, it's so unpleasant. She eats chocolate cake that walnuts are in. You've, like, you see somebody chopping walnuts earlier. Uh, which I was watching. I was like, oh, they're making magic mushrooms. And I was like, it's walnuts. And I was like, ah, oh, shit. And then uh, she had, she she's allergic. So she goes into, like, anaphylactic shock and her throat is closing. And he tries to rush her to the hospital. He's speeding down the highway. It's okay, Charlie. We're almost at the hospital, okay? He sees, like, what, I think, like, a dead deer in the I road? think it's a deer. I had to yeah, slow and, down and look at it because I actually didn't remember what it was, but, yeah, it's a dead deer. But she's leaning out the window to get air, and when he swerves out of the way of the corpse, he, she's decapitated by a telephone. Charlie! And that's the that's it for her. It's horrifying. And then they like jump. They also do this thing is so awful where they go to the house. Like they immediately jump to the house, and you just see, you know, Tony Collette like wild with grief. And my brain at least was like, oh, at least this this movie seemed like a movie that would show more gore than that. It's nice that they abstained. And then <laughs> thirty seconds later, they go to her decapitated head after it's been in the sun for a day. And bugs are eating. What you also, I feel like, kind of maybe skipped over, like, between Tony Collette screaming with grief and her being decapitated is, like, that inc- that horrifying long sequence where the brother is just, like, trying to look back behind him and then he, like, doesn't. And then it's just, like, him oh, God, driving yeah. home, getting out of the car, going into the house, getting into his bed, lying down, his eyes are open, day comes, you hear Tony Collette, like, making coffee and being like, I'm gonna go get some balsa wood and, like, going out to the car. Ah! 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 
And like the whole time it's like right. fixed on his face, which I feel like is, I mean, that scene, I mean, obviously the decapitation is really shocking. And when I saw it in the theater, I did like, I was probably the most shocked I've been at a movie. Like just in terms of like, I was not expecting it to do that. And I was very surprised, but like, honestly, that whole sequence afterwards, it, what I think is so good about it is that it's like, it's like so nightmarish. Like it feels like a night, like you're watching someone's nightmare happening. Yeah. It also just like, that feeling of uh, like drowning in grief, like yeah. the, like when yeah. something terrible happens and you're totally paralyzed and like you can't like the yeah, just the, the they successfully give you the feeling of like shocked grief, like that totally. he's not reacting and not telling her, and then the moment where the wave crashes you on you and it's real. Can I play you the reaction to the car scene, PJ? Oh, I would love nothing more than to listen to that. Okay, here we go. Oh shit. Oh, shit! Oh, fuck! Fuck! Jesus Christ. Jesus fucking Christ. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Fuck that. Oh, <laughs> fuck that. Oh, yeah. Oh, fuck that. You okay? That's really awful. That's awful. Um, yeah, that was just a taste. <laughs> I feel like I forgot how much I hated that scene until I heard that. I really, I hated this movie. But I feel like that's an appropriate emotional response to that scene. Um, uh, yeah, I really feel like that's, that's, yeah, that feels appropriate to me. <laughs> it's, well, it's just like, it's also just like, oh, we're in the category of story that kills children. Like, that's a, that's a different kind of story. And you don't, you think you're in the category of story that's evil child, but like, we will decapitate the youngest. Like, at that point, it's also like, Anything bad can happen in this movie now. Yeah. Like, there's not... The last line's already been crossed, and we're, like, half an hour in. It's not just that the kid dies. It's that the kid dies, then the mother discovers it. Then you get to see her sobbing in the funeral, and then you get to see her sobbing over the grave. And then you get to just, like, watch a family unravel, like, of their own accord, which is to ignore entirely, like, the supernatural element of the movie that is pushing them toward oblivion. Well, I think that also like one of the strongest parts of the movie is the sort of elements that you could that you could just call like a family drama, right? Which is yeah, like how a yeah. family like a family like that processes grief. Like and I think that that Right. works really well, which is what makes the stuff that doesn't work feel so like extraneous and stressful for no reason because I feel like the family drama elements are really strong. Yeah, and it, it's honestly like that's what watching it, I mean talking about it now, I kind of realize like if part of what's interesting about horror is you get to f understand what you are most afraid of, like the thing I'm most afraid of genuinely in life is, I don't know, like I've had years where, I've had a lot of years where I've been super lucky and nothing bad has happened. And then I've had a string of years where it was almost like something had, I mean, the way this year feels globally, but I've personally had years where all of a sudden like somebody was like, oh, you're like, you're behind on your trauma payments and just like boom, boom, yeah. boom, yeah. boom. And you're just plunged into grief world. And like, the feeling that, like, grief doesn't necessarily ennoble anybody or bring out the best in anybody and that it doesn't strengthen connections between people and, like, it can turn everybody into the worst version of themselves at the same time. Like, that is what I actually walk around afraid of. And so, like, those parts of the movie, it, to me, it was almost a relief when the movie started to get more, like, supernatural and weird because that's that stuff is not... I'm way more scared of something sudden and bad happening to my little sister than I am like a demon king trying to claim me. Well, that's part of actually what I thought you might find interesting about this movie is that, and I don't want to air your dirty laundry, but your family has some complicated relationships. I've known you for a long fucking time. Yeah. Uh, I, there, the, what you guys were just referring to is after, as they sort of continue not talking to each other and things start getting steadily weirder, um, there's a, a huge, there's a scene in which Tony Collette's character, uh, Annie, has a huge blow up at their son, Peter, saying, like, I can't forgive you um, because you didn't even apologize. And 
you know, like a normal family would like, they could get something out of this, like something, like something might change. It might bring us closer together. And just here we fucking are. We don't even talk to each other. We hate each other. I have definitely, my dad toward the end of my teens was dating a woman who I really didn't like and who really didn't like me and wanted nothing to do with me. And it was like a thing where I was like, I had one foot out the door. I was practically not living there anymore. But I remember like the slow simmering tension of living with a person who didn't like me. And I also remember having the explosion basically where she threw all of my clothes out on the front lawn and was like, get the fuck out of here. You're not welcome here anymore. And my dad was like, do and my dad who like I went looked to to support me in the same way that um that Steve or that Steve the dad is supposed to support him just kind of didn't do anything he just kind of yeah. didn't say anything so I had to I had to like basically call a friend and stuff all my stuff in his hatchback and go find someplace to live and it fucking sucked mm-hmm. and it was deeply scarring and that I when I watched that scene I was like oh. This this is so fucking real, independent of all of the yeah. apparitions and oh, stuff. Totally. Yeah. I don't know what a normal family is, <laughs> but like nothing. And like I, you know, I like grew up with parents that really loved me and there was a lot of really great stuff. But like I didn't see those conversations and think like these characters in a movie are being like I've definitely been in familial conversations where people have said Hall of Fame painful uh that you know that 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 just got engraved into me stuff like and, and like in moments like that like my my family is not um uh, oh God, I know my mom's been listening to these episodes I just gonna feel so bad I love my mom my mom loves me very much I love my dad my dad loves me very much they had a brutally bad divorce like I know that feeling of just like failure mode and like without any without revealing anything as the child of divorced parents it, it seems like PJ had kind of a hall of fame bad divorce I, I okay here's what here's here's one thing that is maybe like illustrative I one time cuz this is just about I one time was trying I was like basically my my the way oh god this is what the podcast we're in now the 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 I was in this I was in this big family like I have three little sisters I'm the oldest brother um and when my family kind of fell apart in my teenage years I also like had personal trauma stuff going on I was like separate from that and like the way I process everything was to be like I'm going to be the surge protector like if if there's a bad mood that I can see is going to go for my sister and my other sister that's going to piss off my parents, it's going to make them fight. If it hits me, I'll just like hold it all inside. Um, and I remember one conversation with my mom where she like kept talking about something that was really painful kind of insistently to us kids. And I remember the way I ended the conversation was I was like, if you say that thing again, I'm going to punch my hand through this glass and you're going to, like a glass window, and you're going to have to explain to the EMTs why I did it. And I had to say that twice. And that was, like, not the worst day of that month. Like, that's where we were. So the the family stuff was recognizable to me. <laughs> I, I mean, you reacted more strongly to the spooks and scares. So, I mean, I'm surprised to hear you. I mean, I guess you I don't mean, go I, like, oh, my God, when someone says, like, I never wanted to have you. <laughs> <laughs> it, but, I mean, it, it, to me, it made it, uh, what I, and I, I, I actually don't know the answer, like, did I like this movie or not? But I liked the parts of the movie, the, the family didn't feel cartoonishly toxic. They felt like, they felt like a family that, and, and like, honestly, like, I had friends, I grew up in like Philadelphia suburbs. I had friends who had parents that really were as, like angry and hurt and unloving as Tony Collette. Like that stuff felt I I the parts of the movie that felt like a movie to me that I was watching that documented life that I have been in and around was like all that family stuff. Like that was like mainline Philadelphia <laughs> like has a lot of hereditary families. A lot of hereditary families. But but I would say that pretty much after that scene in which there's that big dinner blow up, it kind of pitches in the direction of supernatural. Well, basically, yeah. So she she goes to like a grief support group. She mysteriously meets Ann Dowd in the parking lot. Joan. Ann Dowd is 
you're like, okay, Ann Dowd's playing a creepy bad guy because she's Ann Dowd. Like, I know what she did in The Leftovers. <laughs> I know what she does in movies. Like, I know what Ann Dowd is up to. You don't cast her to be a supportive friend. <laughs> and then, like, you, Ann Dowd's like, oh, you should definitely do this seance thing I learned that brought my kid back. And it was really nice. And, like, that is when the movie becomes, I think, the other movie, which is, like, King Paimon, an ancient demon. Payment. Is Paimon. Payment. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Payment. Uh... <laughs> Are you? I'm sorry. Who are you calling payment? Hail payment. Uh, <laughs> is is trying to like possess the youngest child, but first has to like kind of murder everybody in the family in extremely grotesque ways, right? Well, uh, well, the the demon can't be in a female body. At some point, very early on, the granddaughter is like, "Grandma always wanted me to be a boy," and then Tony Collette starts talking to her about being a tomboy. And you think it's just like this throwaway oh. detail that's like, but then what you find out later is that payment or whatever has to be in a male body. So she goes to the seance and the, it's like a chalkboard that that says like, I love you, mom. And this is Ann Dowd's character showing her the nice version of the seance where her kid's like, hey, I'm over here in the afterlife. I love you. I'm happy. And then she does it and she, it seems like gets possessed by the daughter, the daughter, Charlie. Hello? Mom? 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 I don't like this. Dad, I don't like this. What's happening? Please stop. Please, please, What's going stop on? This. Mom! Please, 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 please stop. What's Dad, happening? Why stop. is everyone please scared? Stop. Why are you scaring them? Make it stop! Make it fucking Dad, stop! Make it stop! And then um, the husband is basically like, uh, hey, I want nothing to do with this. I think you're having a psychotic break. And at the same time, Annie goes through her mom's old possessions and finds a photo album, which basically has like a bunch of pictures of her mom and Ann Dowd's character. They're like good pals. And this has been kept from her. You were very mad that she did not go through her, her mom's photo album first, PJ. Well, also because one of the first things that happens in the movie, I think, is she's going through her mom's stuff. And I'm like, I made a joke to you. I was like, the, there's going to be a book called, like, How to Be a Ghost or whatever. <laughs> and there basically is. It's like your guide to spiritually journeying through the plains or whatever. Yeah. Ari Aster, like, really loves some exposition, some on-screen exposition. And, like, I feel like, not again, not to, like, jump to Midsommar, but I feel like in Midsommar it's deployed almost perfectly and I feel like in Hereditary it's like so cluttered like I kept pausing every time I saw there was like a moment of exposition like that where it was just like a book that you had to read or like you mentioned the part about the female host that that literally happens on a page it's like a highlighted yeah, paragraph yeah. Like on I a page only, it right, says it's that, like you would miss it if you didn't realize if you weren't like reading yeah, if you didn't like I, pause I, the screen and read the page and same goes for earlier in the movie when she's at the support group and she's like, they're like, she, they're like, so do you want to talk? And she's like, well, what is there to say? My dad hung himself. I guess I'll just give you some backstory. Yeah. Yeah. What she says is like, character. she says like, my brother hung himself when he was 16 because my mom, he thought my mom was trying to put people in him. And at the time you're like, oh, whatever. And you just like, forget about it. And then reflecting on it, you're like, oh, she was trying to possess. Put, yeah. She was trying to put payment in her son. It reminded me, now that you guys are pointing this out, of a video game where you're constantly like, the way they unveil story in video games is like, every every single dead character kept a detailed journal yeah. that ended the moment they died and explained everything that was happening. Like, And again, that can be deployed really well. Like a game like, I don't know, Gone Home, if you've ever played like Gone Home, like is an, it's yes. an example of that being, I think... It deployed really well. And it's also just like, it's my favorite joke to myself in the world, but it's like you really believe in a world where anybody reliably keeps a diary, <laughs> including like every guard at like Evil Corp is just like. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, I've never kept a diary. Uh, so <laughs> That's my contribution to that. Uh, so she figures out what's going on. There's a demon that is going to inhabit a male host. She thinks that uh, she starts sort of freaking out and her, her son is getting sort of 
successively weirder and weirder. Like he accidentally, he like has this sort of break in school where he hits his head on the, the desk. And he raises his hand in a really weird way. He raises his hand phrase. in this weird Very way. Very scary. Um, and Annie decides that the only way to do to to stop this from happening is by getting her husband Steve to burn a sketchbook of Charlie's the daughters that is like magically being drawn in and that is sort of the the uh link for whatever spirit is there to the world but when she and this is sort of the way the movie ends she she throw <laughs> she throws the book into the fire and it causes her husband to burst into flames. No, no, no. First, she tries to set it on fire, and it causes her arm to go up in flames. And she's like, oh, that's not good. And then she gives it to her husband. She's like, throw it in the fire. He won't do it. So then she douses it in accelerant and dumps it in the fire. And then he fully goes up in flames. Right. Like, she thinks she's sacrificing herself, but she sacrifices him. And then Peter wakes up. He finds his dad's body. He does not see his mom floating floating above him, it, it, uh, sort of like moving silently across the roof, the ceiling of the room. Um, she then chases him into the attic. So Peter goes up there, finds his grandmother's dead body. Also, his mother gets up there, and there are also cult members sort of hiding in the shadows everywhere all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Which are part of the cult that her grandmother was in. He looks up, and you can hear sort of like a gross uh, slashing sound. Tony Collette She's floating in the air at the top of the attic. Sawing her head off. She's, and she's sawing her head she's off like, with a wire. Isn't that like a, she's garroting her own Yeah, she's garroting her, her own herself. neck, yeah. which is like oh. horrifying. And, horrifying. And, and, you get and it's to, like this weird mechanical like jerking back and forth. She's, like it's not even. She's not screaming or anything. She's just sort of got wide eyes and a closed mouth and she's staring directly at Peter. And this is this was your response right about this moment, PJ. I'm just gonna play it for you. Sure. Fucking shit. Fuck this shit. Fuck. I hate this. You like this. I don't. <laughs> but I feel like you could. Nope. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <sighs> so to escape his mother and to escape the the cultists that are sort of surrounding his house he smashes through a window and it appears that he dies and the spirit of payman goes into his body um he, he sees his mother's decapitated corpse floating into the 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 treehouse that's on their property and he goes up in the treehouse and there are a bunch of people worshiping him a lot of whom appear earlier in the movie one of whom i think is one of his friends who he smokes pot with Another one, I think, oh, I didn't one, one of his teachers. And Ann Dowd is there, and she's now sort of like a high priestess of this cult. And she's like, congratulations, you're payment now. You've become uh, a demon. That's the, end of the, <laughs> that's the end of the movie. And they put a weird crown on his head. Yeah, and then puts a weird crown on his head. And that's the end of it. Um, so, PJ, what'd you think? <laughs> it's definitely the scariest thing we've seen. Like, it's definitely scarier than the other stuff. Like, I think this is like, I don't know. I, I can never remember my number scale. Definitely the scariest. Uh, and then as far as like, just like lingering and sticking around, like I had three nightmares the night, wow. after, the night I watched this thing. I want to tell you, like, PJ, that, uh, even though I, I have given you a lot of shit about, uh, your inability to watch these horror movies, I very much had a nightmare about a supernatural cult that killed me and Sarah, my wife, by sticking a hot poker into my mouth. Ooh. At the, after I watched that movie, the night after I watched it. And I was, yeah. And then, I mean, afterward, I actually became some, like, a supernatural undead demon character who had to find other people to kill, which was kind of cool. But, like, up until that point, it was a very scary dream. Um, yeah, I just had a dream where lots of heads got cut off. It was um, not fun. But I have to say, like, to me, like, the, the movie is just about families and grief. <laughs> I mean, it is about demons, but it's about it's about families and grief. It's about sadness, and it's about inability to talk to one another. 
And I, I really enjoyed it because it was ambitious and it took a lot oh, of totally. horror tropes. And, oh, yeah. And, and yeah. So, even where it doesn't succeed, it, 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 it takes a lot of horror tropes and kind of twists them in weird ways. And um, it it is artsy-fartsy in some ways, but it's also really fucking scary. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I love a scary movie. I love an ambitious movie. And I think also for me, I liked Hereditary better before I had seen Midsommar, which is when I actually got to see, I think, Ari Aster, like, kind of, like, land the end, land the whole movie in this way that felt so satisfying that it then, for me, threw Hereditary into, like, a different kind of relief, if that makes any sense. Well, let's yes. get into it. <laughs> let's talk about, yes, Midsommar, Midsommar. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Patrick Radden Keefe, a reporter at The New Yorker magazine. On my new podcast, Wind of Change, I investigate a rumor I haven't been able to shake since I first heard it years ago. It came from someone inside the CIA, and the story was that the agency had written one of the best-selling rock songs of all time, a song that changed the world. So that was the tip that started me on this story, and it only got crazier from there. Listen to Wind of Change, a new original series from Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify. All right, welcome back to Scaredy Cats. Uh, okay, Midsummer, Midsummer. You know it's Midsummer to you. You know it's Midsummer. Just say to you. what uh, I hello. Say. <laughs> <clears throat> Midsummer is a movie about uh, a woman named Danny who is in a relationship with a guy named Christian. Not the best relationship. <laughs> um, it's such a good portrait of like a certain kind of shitty partner. It's really uh-huh. good. I mean, shitty boyfriend, honestly. Um, and early in the movie, her. Her sister commits suicide and in the process kills her parents. I mean, it not in the pro- that makes it sound like it, it was a murder murder suicide. suicide. Where she kills her parents and also kills herself. Um, and Danny is desperately um, sort of lonely and and helpless and uh, is constantly leaning on her boyfriend who doesn't seem to really enjoy being leaned on. And um, together with three of their friends. They four of their friends. They go to Sweden to go to one of their friends' agrarian northern Swedish community. The Harga is what they're called. I was okay. Yeah, they're a cult. They're a cult, and they kill everybody one by one. Well, I think like I guess the question of what makes a cult, but they they in the beginning they seem like an intentional community, like a commune, and then yeah, they're they're cults. But I feel like once you're wearing skins, once you're wearing- <laughs> like a people. <laughs> Sorry, once you're wearing, yeah, once you're wearing skins, I guess it's a cult. Yeah. Uh, the movie starts with like a lot of character building. We meet, uh, we meet Danny. We get to hear her on the phone with her boyfriend, nervous about a sort of unsettling text message she gets from her sister. I've emailed her three times and still no response. So I'm getting a little bit nervous. I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, probably. She does this every other day, Danny, and only because you let her. Well, I don't let her. She's bipolar. Yeah, I know, but you do, though, babes. You go straight to crisis mode. Well, she's my sister, and even you said that this email seemed different. Yeah, right, but is it, though, really? And after that, you also see her on the phone with a friend fretting over the potential for her um, boyfriend to break up with her. And um, in those two phone calls, you get like a very, very clear picture of their relationship, Um, which is that he just feels sort of like perpetually aggrieved by having to put up with her. He's like the, it's a perfect, like uh, a little description of like a kind of negligent partner where it's like, he's, it's not like he's like, fuck off. Like he, he, goes through just enough of the motions that, like, if you had a transcript of their conversation, you'd be like, well, he said a supportive thing, but we're clearly, he, like, wants to get off the phone, doesn't want to help her, like, is like, ah, yeah, your sister did pretty clearly threaten to harm herself, but, like, she does it all the time. Like, he's so, it's such a, God, it's so, it's like, everyone, I feel like, either you've been in that relationship or you've tried to talk a friend into leaving that relationship. Or you've been that person. 
Yeah, I asked Alex and I was like, have you been this boyfriend? He was like, yes, I've been this boyfriend. Ooh, I- I, I feel like also what makes that opening sequence, I feel like what makes it work, it's not only just like Danny, her phone call with him, then her phone call with her friend, but then also that like cut scene to the bar. Yeah. And I feel like it's a, this is a good movie. This is a movie that's indulging in that sort of horror trope of like all, you, you're sort of, they're establishing all the sins that these characters are going to commit that's going to earn them their deaths, right? Yes. Yeah. And like the, those are the one fucking guy, the guy who's vaping the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> What's his name? That actor. He, he's such a fucking douchebag, and like he's the guy with the high eyebrows. Yeah, and he's like the guy. Who's he's like, such a good schmuck. He's great at that role, and he's just like you got to find yourself a girl who likes to have sex. Like also, Ari Aster, his idea of what sort of like men talking about sex alone sounds like is so weird. Like in Hereditary, somebody tells a kid like, "Don't forget you to bring, your, bring dick. your dick to the party." <laughs> like men are constantly forgetting their dicks. Like, ah, shit. I, mean, I, I, don't know. I don't know how men talk about sex. When I, I wouldn't know. He says, no, they have a whole extended riff about like, oh, we're going to go to Sweden and get all these girls pregnant. See, you could be getting that girl pregnant right now. And don't forget about all the Swedish women you can impregnate in June. Okay, guys. Don't forget about mm-hmm. all the Swedish milkmaids. Men who want to have like casual, like sort of misogynist sex aren't like about I, like, they don't want to get people pregnant. Well, I don't think. But he, what's ironic is he later does get someone pregnant, right? That's the whole point of that ending. Oh, right. So, like... Okay, there's so a So that reason. actually feels very, like, a deliberate sort of turn, right? But but what we've missed is, again, we're still, like, five minutes into the movie. And you get this incredibly anxiety-inducing slow-motion single shot. Wait, I, sorry. I feel like it's important to say that, like... It's like they're having this like kind of banter and then she's calling him and she they're like, don't pick up the phone, don't do it. And he's like, I gotta do it, guys. And he like gets up. Hey. Danny. Babe. And then she just that scream. I guess Ariaster loves like a white woman delirious with grief, like a visual that he really loves, or like a like a sound. Cause also like that's like Tony Collette does does mo- that in, yeah. in Hereditary too, where it's like just this insane. I mean, it's very effective. It's incredibly unnerving, but it's like that insane scream of like pure like grief where you like can't comprehend what's happening. I remember when my grandfather died. I remember my mom talking to me about how when my grandfather died, she made that sound and she was like, I had to look it up. Like it's called keening. Oh yeah. But it's just like that totally like wordless screaming grief. That place, like that sound is the thing that I'm like, you get time away from it and eventually you have to go back to it. And when you go back to it, it feels like the only thing in the world. Yeah. Um, so it's a slow motion shot of like the firemen walk up the stairs and they see hoses attached to the exhaust of a car that are one one goes into the parents' room and the parents are laying dead in, uh, in their bed. And the other is uh, like basically duct taped to the mouth of Danny's sister. Yeah. Then it cuts to like a few months later and she finds out that her boyfriend is planning a trip to their friend. Uh, what is their friend's name? Yeah, it's like Pele or Peli. She finds out that they are planning on taking a trip to his, the the celebration, the midsummer celebration in the commune that he lives on in Sweden. And they have like the and most- And she's totally invited if she wants to come, they have but like it wouldn't be fine. the recognizable she shitty relationship fight. I told you I wanted to go to Sweden. No, well, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity and I decided Look, I to do it. I don't mind you going. I just wish you would have told me. That's all. Well, I just apologized, Danny. You didn't apologize. You said sorry, which sounds more like too bad. Maybe I should just go home. What? No, no. I'm just trying to understand. And I'm trying to apologize. And I don't need an apology. I don't. I just wanted to talk about it. That's all. I've never seen it nailed quite that way in a movie before. But eventually, even though he assumes she's actually not going to come, she does end up going. Um, and they fly to this commune. It's like midnight sun. Is It's like sort of, it's the summer solstice, which means that like in northern Sweden, it basically never gets dark. So the whole movie, which is the exact opposite of Hereditary, which was a movie that was mm-hmm. all about things in the darkness that you couldn't see. This whole movie is just like bathed in like a blinding sunlight. It, it, it looks like 
Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music mm-hmm. the whole fucking time. Mm-hmm. It's such a weird choice for a scary movie. Also, it goes for such a long time. I mean, like, there's a solid hour where you're just watching a non-horror, like, a movie about some people visiting a cult in Sweden and learning about their traditions and their rights. And then, like, gradually after an hour, it's just, it starts to be actual horror, I guess. Christian's friends, uh, one of whom is Cheaty from The Good Place and one of whom is that rat-faced guy who plays an asshole in every, everything. Um, the schmuck with the high eyebrows. Yeah. They get picked off. One of them looks at the secret book. The other one urinates on, like, the ancestor tree. And urinates like, on their ancestral tree. I just had to tree. piss, man. Yeah. <laughs> but then the other one, oh, my God. So he wants to take pictures of the cult's holy book. So he sneaks into this, like, dark sanctum. He's turning the pages one by one. You're just like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And then he sees a shadow, and he looks up. And for a second, you think it's the other disappeared friend, but it's a naked cult member wearing the dude's face as a mask. It is very creepy. So um, it it gets to this point where um, Danny and Christian are sort of the last two people alive of the Americans or of the outsiders. And they, they both are once again tripping on, um, on crazy Harga juice. And Danny is, is part of the, the, this dance contest where the last person standing gets crowned the May queen. And basically what it is is they have to dance around a maypole and people are getting dizzy and falling over and running into each other. And anybody who does that gets, gets, gets taken out. And the last person standing is the May queen. And Christian, well, Christian, <laughs> I feel so weird describing this. Oh it feels inappropriate to describe. Christian is basically seduced by a member of the heart. That's an interesting word to use for it. Yeah, seduced is an interesting word. I would not have used the word seduced. What word would you use? Uh, I feel like I, I feel like you could argue that's a rape scene. I also feel like this is a moment of, like, humor, not that what I'm saying now, but, like, there's a, where, like, she's dancing and she's so, like, she's so happy, like, with all these women. She's dressed like the Harga, like, she's in this. Right, and she's smiling. And she's, and she's smiling. She's, like, and, laughing. And then it keeps, like, cutting to, like, the group watching. And he's just this, like, dour. Like, he's just sitting there, like, super fucked up. And, like, really, he's actually kind of dark amongst all the Harga because they're all in these, like, beautiful white gowns. And he's just, like, sitting there kind of, like, weird, sort of scruffy. And then they, this whole time, we also haven't talked about this whole, whole time, this when this one girl with like long red hair who like has been like pursuing him throughout the film, like she's clearly taken an interest in him. During an earlier scene, she had, he, he found her pubic hair in his, in his meat pie and her, mes- oh, her yeah. menstrual blood is in his drink. Um, they bring him into this like barn where, like, this woman is, like, lying, like, nubile on this, like, bed of plant matter surrounded by nude women from the community of all ages. Um, PJ said it looked like salad. It is like salad, yeah. And then, like, he comes in and she, like, opens her legs and it's like, hey, like, and then, yeah, so then he, like, proceeds to, depending on how you watch it, like, have sex with her, but, like, he's tripping balls and is, like, clearly really upset. Like, like, I I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, um... And it, That's interesting. I hadn't. It hadn't occurred to me to view it as a rape scene. I think because I'm just like, I'm in a horror movie. He's coded as the shitty boyfriend. The shitty boyfriend's gonna cheat on the girlfriend. But you're right. He's like totally fucked yeah, up like on he's drugs. Not, and it's a, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I get again. I feel like, but I, I view it as like a scene of se- sexual assault of a kind. Um, though Danny obviously views it as cheating, right? Because then when she re- she when she sees it through the keyhole. Her response is just like this. It's like this final shattering of like her her grief, and I feel like what makes it so interesting in this film is that it's the thing that causes for her that final rupture. But it's the th- it's a thing that he's actually not that responsible for. Right, and like all the other characters are sort of like vi- they're given a boundary, they violate the boundary, they're punished for violating the boundary. But Christian, yeah. It's like he's walking toward the boundary the whole time, and it's just ironic that he gets shoved over the boundary at the very end. Do you know what I mean? And it feels more like it feels. It feels, I think one of the things it's doing is it like, you don't want everything to map one to one to one. Totally. Like, you want, you just want to like muddy the line the way real life does. Like, the way that things don't 
Like it would feel too tidy or something. Yeah. Um, so she finds out that he's cheating by looking through a keyhole. She's directed over there by some of the Harga. No, they try to the stop she- her. Remember? Because she oh, hears the sounds yeah. and they're like, no, that's not for us. They keep saying, that's not for us. That's not for us. Sorry, do you mind if I describe right. this? Is that okay? Go, go ahead. Go for it. So yeah. like, yeah, so she comes back from the ser- from this like ritual where they like bury some meat in the ground or whatever for the harvest. She hears the sound. They're like, no, don't go over there. And she's like, what's happening? And she goes over and they try to stop her. And she runs, looks in the keyhole, sees what's happening. We should go now to Sid's house. What's this? It's a special meeting only for the queens. And she will bless you. And then she runs out and runs into, like, the barn where they've been staying and is, like, having, like, a complete, like, panic attack, meltdown, freak out. And there's that scene, which I guess at this point is a pretty iconic scene of Hereditary, which is, like, the women, like, surround her and she's, like, screaming and they're screaming with her. Like, it's like, it's like yeah. she's screaming this sound that, like, you haven't heard since the beginning of the film when she lost her entire family. And, like, she's screaming and they're all holding her as this, like, net. And, like, as, and they're, they're, like, trying to get her to breathe and then she calms down a little bit and then she just starts screaming and then they scream with her. And it's this, it's the first moment in the film where anyone has, has empathized with her. That is the moment where, like, oh, where, like, uh, something clicked for me in this movie, which is, which is, yes, this is a breakup movie, but this also feels like a movie about like chosen families. A hundred, hundred thousand percent. Absolutely. And it's like, yeah. And which I mean, again, like this is why I thought it was interesting to watch Hereditary and then together because I feel like this movie is a successful execution of ideas that Hereditary was chewing on but didn't quite figure out or didn't quite swallow. Mm. And this, because yeah, it is about like, it's like this moment in which like the family that you had is gone or insufficient. And like, you are realizing that like you are alone and then you realize you're not alone. Right. Right. And, but I mean, the part of the reason I feel like Danny stays in this village for so long is because like, yes, she sees uh, this horrifying thing of these people jumping off of a cliff and killing themselves. But in that moment when the guy is sort of writhing and one of them does not die on the fall and he's writhing in agony, everyone else starts writhing in agony with him. And it's like this culture that is so diametrically opposed to the unempathetic group of people she surrounded herself with that are like the most empathetic. Yeah. And the thing that we have not said about this sex scene that that they have. Oh yeah, right. They are surrounded by naked women who are also emulating the sort of sex noises that the woman yeah. is 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 emitting. It's and at some point she of, like reaches up behind. This was I thought a funny moment, which is like she reaches up and Christian like grabs her hand, like oh yeah, like and then but then she's not reaching for him. She's reaching for the women behind her. Right. Yeah. yeah and so it's but like it's she's like trying this, to connect. It's like yeah, this like this net, this group of people that's like so connected and like everything happens as one. Like there's no individual. It's just like yeah, this group. So, so she has this moment of agony and she, oh, and she, she has become the May Queen at this point. And sort of the last responsibility as the May Queen is that as part of the Midsummer Festival, this cult basically has to sacrifice nine people mm-hmm. and they've already sacrificed eight. And, uh, Danny is told to choose between the last surviving new, uh, new blood, which is, um, her boyfriend, Christian, or at this point, just a random guy. And I think it, it will come as a surprise to no one who hasn't seen this movie <laughs> that she chooses her boyfriend, whom they have uh, stitched into a bear suit well, and put in like well, they, they, a burning they, house. They take him, they basically gut a bear, uh, sew him into the bear's carcass. <clears throat> put him in this ceremonial temple with the rest of the sacrifices and then set the building on fire. And as the May Queen at this point, she has this just like dour, horrified expression. She's constantly, she's like has this puffy face from like sobbing because she's like absolutely lost her mind. And she is wrapped in this insane (laughs) cocoon of flowers. It's so many flowers. Wait, it's impossible to explain. She looks like 
Snuffleupagus. She looks like a flower snuffleupagus. That, oh, I think that's a good. I, I always think of it as like a slug of grief because I feel like then when she's like <laughs> trying to walk in it and I read that it was so heavy that they had to sew a, a stool for her underneath so she could sit because she like <laughs> it was so heavy that like to take breaks between takes like she had to sit but they couldn't get her on anything so they had to put a stool like sewn oh in God. underneath somehow. <laughs> the idea of being smothered with beauty. It's like at the end of this movie, it's like her grief, her anguish, and the way she's like struggling across the landscape as like the building is burning. Like it's so, it just worked so well. And I feel like it was an example of like the horror element. Everything just came together so perfectly. And then her smiling, right? Like that sort of final close up of her face where she's like grieving and then she like has that kind of insane smile. As the building is burning. It's like oh, the final so shot. It's so good. It's so good. It's her coming home. Like it's her yeah, exactly. Her realizing she's home. It's exactly. the nicest moment. It's so And it's be- like right. catharsis for her. Mm-hmm. And and at that moment I was like, I was like, I was watching the movie as like a horror movie where I was like, the Hargar are the people to be escaped. I sure hope they get away. And at that moment I was like, the Hargar are the yeah. heroes! <laughs> <laughs> exactly. She like goes on a, she like, she starts the movie losing her family. And she ends the movie, like, having Getting found a family. family. It's just everything that happens in between is horrifying. Yeah. Well, just, for me, the confusing thing is I enjoyed the movie. <laughs> like, I enjoyed the movie. I think I experienced the fear more the way you guys experience it normally, which is, like, uh, definitely scared me. And, I, you know, I felt dread in anticipation of being afraid. But I didn't feel like I was, like, crushed underneath it. I don't think I would watch this movie again. But, like, I just, I thought it was a good movie that I liked as a movie. That I felt things... Did you enjoy it in spite of the horror aspects or or did the horror aspects add to your enjoyment of it? Add to my I don't think I don't think I think I needed like I think I don't think you could not have those. God, I can't believe I've now seen it and enjoyed a scary movie. Like it, a, I'm a so not only movie. a scary Proud movie, but you. like one one that is notorious for being for being intense. Maybe not like horrifying, but like for being a, a tough watch. Yeah, I think I have a working theory now, which is like, I don't like movies that are about women being murdered one by one or slowly over time. Like, I think that's probably sure. not my cup of tea. Sure. Um, and I like movies that feel like they're at least trying to be about something. Um... I, I, God, it makes me want to want to show you so many. More I know. Movies. I'm also like sitting here in my seat, being like, "Oh my God, I have so many movies I want to show you." <laughs> so they can me feel really twitchy. <laughs> okay, so PJ, the next and final episode of Scary Cats Horror Show uh, is the main event. The reason that we are all here, we are going to watch Get Out. And I will say that 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 Hereditary and Midsummer are sort of like varsity level horror movies, and like in terms of scares, in terms of like how intense huh. they are. And Us and Get Out, which are another two two movies that were the the reason behind making this this podcast in the first place, are are way less scary. You're going to be fine. I think. Yeah. Really. I, I I would argue. I think that Get Out is probably intense like it's not as intense for non-black folks in a specific sort of way because it's like not or it's not like necessarily for them or yeah, at them yes. um but certainly in terms of just like scares in terms of like yeah like dread if you've if you can get through hereditary i think you could probably get through get out okay i i'm i'm excited to finally watch this also i feel like maybe i should just try to watch some more scary movies like, it's kind of like exercise where it's like if I don't go to the gym for a while, I get really scared of the gym. Like, I think I need yeah. to see some stuff so that I don't just think it was a fluke that this was okay. Huh. Interesting. All right. Well, yeah. I guess— I th- That makes sense to me. I guess Carmen and I have to make you a list, but I'll watch them with you. I know you will. <laughs> well, I don't know much about most things and certainly nothing about tech, but if you ever want to talk about horror movies again, I am here. Carmen Maria Machado is the author of In the Dream House and Her Body and Other Parties. Scaredy Cats is hosted by PJ Vote and me, Alex Goldman. This episode was produced by Lisa Wang and edited by Shruti Pinamanani. We're mixed by Sam Baer. Fact-checking by Michelle Harris. 
Special thanks to John Gabris. Our theme song is by Mariana Romano, and our closing theme is by me. Our cover art was made by Ali Moss. Don't forget to watch Get Out in advance of the next episode. You can catch new episodes early on Spotify on Tuesdays, and then wherever else you get your podcasts on Fridays. Thanks for listening. When T.I. was a kid, he wanted to buy a raunchy record. I just really wanted to hear the curse word. I wanted to hear how far they were willing to go. To find out, listen to Mogul, the show where we talk to people we love about their favorite moments in hip-hop history. I was like, yo, people can do this? God damn. The Mogul Mixtapes. Listen now for free on Spotify.